Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. My name is Clyde Best. I'm from Bermuda, former West Ham United football player. It's a pleasure being here with you all. And this is my second home. And um, I always look forward to coming back. So let's start at the beginning when you were at home in Bermuda. Mm. What's your first contact with football when you were a kid? Oh, I would say I probably around six, probably younger than that. Yeah. I remember getting the football for Christmas and my eldest brother at the time, he ended up kicking the ball against the wall and the ball exploded. So that was <laughs> my first disappointment of being with the soccer ball. But... After getting a little older um, and going to school and playing with your mates in the streets and at the on the soccer fields, you know, you got a liking for it. And um, as I went through school, I went to an old boys school and we played a lot of sport and football and cricket was our main thing. And, uh, you know, that's how I got into it. And as a matter of fact, I was telling Brian Deere today, my Love for football started, I remember once seeing Tottenham Hotspurs when they won their first um, Fears Cup. Oh, yeah. And that was in the 60s. And I said to myself then, hey, that would be a nice job to have. 
And from that day on, I just worked towards it and made sure that I was doing the things that I had to do as far as um, improving on your skills and stuff like that. And, you know, it worked out for me. So you thought about it as the possibility of a job quite early on? Yes, as a young kid, I knew that's, wow. that's what I wanted. Yeah, That's yeah. interesting. Because you were a decent cricketer as well, weren't you? And yeah. your, your dad, if I'm right, was mm. from Barbados. Mm, so yeah, did, did your dad have an influence on that? Was he keen for you to choose cricket? Well, I'm sure he would have liked me to have played cricket. He um, um, took me to Barbados um, the year they went for independence and they got their independence and he, that was my first trip to Barbados with him. And uh, his best friend was Everton Weeks, so Everton Weeks, so they grew up together. Oh, is that how you ended up meeting him? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, okay. I did, yeah. And um, he took me around this, to the schools with him where he was coaching and um, at the end of it, he said to my dad, I want him to stay. But my dad came to me and he told me, look, you've got a decision to make. It's either staying here, playing cricket, or I said, well, look, I'm going to take football. Right. Because I was in the national team of Bermuda when I was like 14, 15 years old. Okay. So I had a taste of uh, traveling around the world and Pan Am Games and Olympic Games and stuff like that. So I knew then that I wanted to play. And um, to be fair to my dad, he, you know, hey, if that's what you want, we're going to make it happen. And he made sure that I had everything that I needed to play, boots and pads and all the stuff. And um, we lived in an area in Bermuda at the time and we called Dockyard. And it was the British Navy base was in that area. Okay. So I got a chance to play with a lot of the guys from the British ships every day. So that helped my development. And when I came to England, I already knew how to take a cook, take a kick, because they would give you some hammer. <laughs> and we were like 12, 13 years old, and they would still boot you and tell you, get up and go. So you're like playing with men, so basically. We were playing with men at a young age, you know. So when I came here, you know, it made it that much easier because I knew what I had to do and um, you know after being in the youth team with a lot of the guys I'm saying to myself I'm over here on trial you know I said I think I've got this you know to myself because I was overstanded you know compared to a lot of the guys that was a bit different you know So how did you get set up with the trial with West Ham I mean what you 17 at the time Yes I was 17 um, when I came um, Phil Woosnam who played for West Ham was in the North America Soccer League. Okay. I'm sure Phil had something to do with it. And my national team coach, a gentleman named Graham Adams, had been on some coaching courses and Ron Greenwood was probably running them or showing them. And he made arrangements through Ron to um, let me come to England for a trial. And he um, accepted me and uh, I came and that's all she wrote after that. It was, you know... I knew I could do it, and um, I made a point to, hey, I've come this far. I'm not going back home. I've come to play football. Was so. was that the, the, the difficulty, adapting on a human level? Because you talk like quite nostalgically in your book about summers in Bermuda when, mm. when you were a kid and how you've got so much of the outdoor culture that you like to embrace. I mean, Britain like in the late 60s must have been a pretty great place when you arrived. Well, it was, but this is what I wanted. And 
in order to do what I needed to do, Britain was the only place that I could come and play. So you've got your business head you on know, already so, at 17. Yeah, yeah. so, uh, you know, I had to do what was necessary. And my dad always taught me, hey, when you get there, you're not playing for yourself. You're playing for all the people that want to play, that can play, all the people that work in the hospitals, the nurses of, you know, people from the islands. Those are the people you're working for because they need somebody to help pick them up and get them going. And that was one of the things that I kept focus on and made sure that I, you know, done that. So you often come back to the way your dad like quite openly says to you that you're a standard bearer for, for other people. Yeah. How conscious were you about being one of the first black players when you arrived in England for the first time? Oh, well, I knew about it before I left because at the time I was uh, doing it, um, the first player of color that I saw was Albert Johansson. Right. And he played for Leeds uh, then. But by the time I had come here, he had retired or finished playing. Then I had John Charles, who was at West Ham with me, and his brother Clive. Well, you ended up living with their family, didn't you? With their family, so I ended up staying with them. So they became my extended family away from home. Sure. And, um, you know, that's what happened, you know. And um, as I said, it was something that I knew I had to do because, as you say, it wasn't many of us in those days. So Mm. I had to take the bull by the horns and say, hey, let's go do what you got to do. And, you know, it worked out. But I I suppose you look at that West Ham team, that West Ham setup then, and, you know, you think of Ron Greenwood being Mm. in charge. Mm. Think of a lot of your teammates, their names who who trip off the tongue, Bobby Moore, Mm. Martin Peters, Jeff Hurst, this was only a couple of years after West Ham won the World Cup, as as, as popular legend mm. as it. Harry Redknapp yeah. um, was there as well. John Lyle was 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 part of the the backroom staff. Yeah, but it, what came across, I thought, in the book is you always seemed like you were very looked after by them. That you were very much made part of the family, and uh, and Bobby Moore especially was someone who kind of took you under his wing. Yeah, um, you know, I as I've said this afternoon. Um, you know, a person like Bubby, you know, he's one of the best human beings anyone on earth has uh, or could meet. Um, he was so down to earth. You know, he was willing to help you, you know, make sure you were doing the right thing. And regardless who it was, you know, it could be a young apprentice, you know, he had time for you, you know, and uh, that's something that I would always remember him for and is a person that I would never forget because. You know, he done a lot for me and with me. And and with all us young players at West Ham, it joined that time. I mean, as you said, we had world-class players, but at West Ham, they were just another player. And that's the way they um, acted, and that's the way they wanted to be treated. I mean, as you say, for guys that have just won the World Cup, I mean, we had three of them in, our, in the same dressing room, you know, mm. and it was a great feeling to know that, hey, I'm going to be on the same team as these guys. It was unbelievable because I remember watching that World Cup and seeing Eusebio and Pele and all those play and to be playing with three guys from the England team, you know, was a privilege and an honor, you know, and I would always be indebted to them because they helped me a lot during my development and during the the way I, you know, was able to develop and play, you know, and, 
people like Martin. And the last time I saw Martin, I, you know, thanked him. I re remember playing a game once at uh, Middlesbrough in the Cup. And I had three goals, scored three goals. But each one of them was offside because I didn't know really how to break the offside trap then. Mm. And Martin pulled me aside and he told me, whenever you're running through on one one just run straight on the line, then make your turn. So curve your run. Right, curve your run and curtail your run. And um, I took that advice and he was right, you know, because, you know, if I had uh, done what he had told me from the beginning, you know, I would have had a head trick and we probably would have been still in the FA Cup. But that day we <laughs> ended up losing, I think, to Middlesbrough 1-0. And uh, because I had them three goals, this is a lot, you know. But those are the type of guys that we're, as I say, playing with Jeff was a honor and a privilege because Jeff, had, for a big fella, had such a great touch. He had two good feet, could add the ball, and could turn on a dime, you know. And speaking with Brian today, you know, Jeff had a good teacher himself. He had a guy like Budgie Byrne. Mm who played for Crystal Palace, who we bought from Crystal Palace to West Ham. And uh, Johnny was a fantastic player himself. So, you know, West Ham have had a time in their history where we've had some fantastic players come through that place. And a lot's to do with Ron Greenwood. You know, he believed in playing football. And, you know, you were taught the right way, you know. We'll, we'll come to Ron in, in a minute, but you talked about some ways in which you needed to learn about the pro game. But on the other hand, I remember Harry Redknapp saying that the first day he turned up and saw you at the training ground. Mm. He was like, this guy's big. He's not just got technique, but he can handle himself as well. And he thought you were 23 or 24. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you're, like, yeah, was... you're like 17, yeah. 18 yeah. at the time. So on the other hand, you're kind of somebody's made for, for English football, right? Yeah, I think being the size I was made a big difference to my game. I mean, it helped. Um, what I learned in England was that they would tell you it's better to be a big good one than a little good one. Mm. And I believe in that because I remember one day playing against Tommy Smith at um, our place and Tommy had this reputation of being hard and tough. And he wanted to hit me, and he ran into me, and I just braced myself. And when you look, Tommy was on his backside. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it does help being big. Um, and if you can play, all the better. I mean, you look at people like Jeff Estill. Mm. You look at people like um, Ray Kennedy, you know, uh, John Redford, you know, Ellen Gilzine, mm. Peter Osgood, you know, the names go on and on. Um, the boys that play for Stoke, um, big fella up front, um, was a good player. You look at Joe Royal, you look at um, Brian Kidd, mm. you look at um, um, at uh, Man City, Mike Summerby, and Franny Lee was a little smaller than us, but he was thick, stocky, you know, and stocky, yeah. so he can take it. So if, if we go to August 69, it's your debut uh, a very busy Upson Park mm. against Arsenal. Yes, yes. How are you feeling when you're coming out of the tunnel? Well, funny enough, I never really got nervous when I played. You know, I was it was an honor because I went to training on the Monday morning, and that's how I found out I was playing. Right, okay. Ron called me aside, 
And he said, you ready to play? And I said, ready to play? He said, you're starting tonight. Go home and get your rest. So I went home, laid down for a couple hours, till it was time to go back to the stadium and went out there and, um, you know, done what I had to do. You know, um, Arsenal at that time were, you know, a great team. Mm. They had some fantastic players. I mean, you had the little hard man, Peter Story. I'll never forget <laughs> Peter. Um, um, the one I remember going to tackle with, um, what was his name? Play for Arsenal, center back. Um, not, um, Terry Neal was playing then. And Terry and I um, went over the top. I went over the top to him and he chased me around the field. And all day trying to, <laughs> try to get me back. But it's funny because he went for, become a manager at Hall. And I had to go to a hearing for one of his players when we played against Hall one day. I really, so we ended up pretty good friends, you know. But through that particular game, you know, he, he was out to uh, get hold of me. But he couldn't catch me. So that was okay. <laughs> It's, it's funny you mentioned Terry Neal. I, I remember him as a as, as a manager of Arsenal mm. late, later down the line. And of course, we've already touched on Harry Redknapp, mm. who, of course, we know as as, as, a, as a manager here. Mm. But do, do people sometimes overlook what a what a player he was? Because you really enjoyed playing with him, didn't you? Yeah, I enjoyed playing with H. Um, he was a yeah, he was a good cross of the ball. I mean, you know, you Beckham before yeah. Beckham. Uh, long before back in mean, yeah. you think about it I mean and Harry would get to the byline and mm. knock a good cross in I mean I don't know if Beckham got to the byline as no. much as Harry you know, early crosses cross it, yeah, cross yeah. It in front of the defender you know but Harry would get to the byline and knock crosses in and you know Johnny Sissons was another one you know so in those days Ring has done that mm. you know today I mean very seldom see a person that playing wide shaking the shoulder and dropping it and Going to the bar. They're meant to come inside and score goals, aren't they? Right. So it's a different time, you know, and different era. So you have to accept that. But Harry, he was in a, I think he was a decent player. And when you've played at West Ham for a year, the team goes to to the US and does Mm. a little tour Mm. and you go back to Bermuda and a lot of the players, and as we were saying before, these are world-class superstars Mm. who've, won the World Cup and mm. people know them. They're taken aback by the reception that you get when you get to Bermuda. How did that reception feel for you when you got back for that exhibition game? Did the penny drop uh, uh, about how influential you making it at West Ham had been or, or, or did you know already? Well, I knew already from the time I left that, you know, people were expecting good things, you know, because I was at a high level in Bermuda at that time as far mm. as playing the game. I mean, during those years in Bermuda, we always had English teams coming to Bermuda. I mean, I remember playing against Chelsea when I was, I was probably 16. Okay. Chelsea came to Bermuda. All of them used to come. Chelsea, we've had Celtic, we've had Coventry City, um, Tottenham Hotspur. Mm. So, you know, you knew, I knew to myself, you know, what the people expected and what they wanted. And I knew it was important for me to make the people happy. You know, mm. hey, if I'm going to be coming, I'm coming to do business. I'm not coming to mess around and let it slip away from me because lots of times in this profession, you are lucky if you get one chance. Mm. 
let alone two. So I've got one chance. So I have to make it happen now. And by doing that, you know, people at home enjoyed it. I mean, I'm one of their own. And coming from a little place like Bermuda to coming to a place like England, you know, made it that much better for them because if we have 22 square miles, I mean, mm. we can fit in Great Britain millions of times. You yeah. Know? And to have a fella come here and to be able to play on the big stage with world-class players, you know, hey, made everybody proud, you know. And I'm glad I tell people all the time, if the Lord picked me, I'm glad he picked me because it's been a great ride and I've enjoyed it. But there were difficult times in in England, and you talk about it, especially in away matches, yeah, uh, where you get some abuse. Mm. How did you deal with that, and how did you deal with that becoming a regular occurrence? And how did how did the club deal with that? How did how did Ron Greenwood help you out? Well, lots of times, you know, through talking, sit down and talk. Um, one of the biggest helpers was Bobby, because I'll never forget the time he come back from the World Cup. And the people in Columbia said he stole a bracelet. Yeah. So we were playing at Old Trafford this day. And they start singing, where's the bracelet? Where's the bracelet? Yeah. Where's the bracelet, Bobby Moore, in your handbag? But he was that tough mentally. He just went up to the Stratford end and he started conducting the crowd as they right. were singing. And that was one of the most brilliant moves I've ever seen because... Once he had done that, they stopped mm. saying what they were saying and singing. And um, I said to myself, hey, if he could do that, you know, I could learn from that, you know. And by listening to the people throw abuse at you and call you all sorts of names, you got to be mentally tough, you know. Um, did you block it out or, or, it out, or, or yeah. did it pump you up? No, it pumped me up as well. And then I blocked it out. You know, you still hear it even when you block it out, you. Yeah. Still hear it. So you say to yourself, I'm going to show them. And I'll never forget one day I was at Everton and they decided to pick on Clyde this day. Mm. And I said to myself, hey, uh-uh, this is not going to happen. I picked the ball up from the halfway line and Terry Derricutt was with me. And all he could do was hold on to my jersey. And I dragged him from <laughs> the half line right to the goalkeeper. And as the goalkeeper came, I showed him a dummy. He more or less sat down and I just dinked the ball over his head and into the back of the net. And Joe Royal came to me after the game. He said, Clyde, that's the best goal I've ever seen at Goodison Park. So for him to say something like that to me, because I, I, I like Joe the way Joe played. He was big, strong, good in the air. You know, when he was young, playing with Everton. So yeah. I admired him as a player as well. So for him to say that to me, hey, that got me going. But it, some of the abuse was more serious. I mean, you, the, the thing, I guess, that's really striking in the book was when you talk about the letter you got in 1970. Right. Threatening you with... With an acid attack. Yes. Yeah. Now, and that's, I, I guess, where the title of the book, The Acid that's Test, right, takes it, right. takes it, yeah. takes its name from. Mm. Um, I mean, that's different. Words are one thing, however unpleasant that may be. Mm. An actual physical threat on your person is right. is something else. How, how did you deal with that? Well, we, um, you know, Ron and I sat down and we talked about it and had a plan for what we're going to do. Um, you know, I applaud a lot of the guys because they put me in the middle and 
like form two groups outside and let me go in the middle. Okay. And um, so if anything happened, you know, uh, it wasn't going to be on our watch, you know, so to speak. Mm. So the police were there. They were made um, aware of what was going on and um, they more or less protected me and, you know, everything worked out okay, you know, but it wasn't a nice thing to have happened. I would like to be able to see the person up until this day, I mean, and look him in the eye and say, you know, you really want to throw acid in the person's face. That's that's not normal, you know, that's not normal. You know, I suppose you don't know what's a yeah. threat and yeah. what's what's yeah. actually yeah. a genuine that's possibility. Right. You have to take precaution. How, how long was it in your mind for after that? I, I still think about it sometimes a day. Right. Know? I mean, you know, to, uh, you know, have someone do that sort of stuff to you, you know, it's something that you don't erase you know, mm. like that, even though it's been like almost 50 years, but I will always remember it, you know, and um, as you say, you don't take things for granted because you don't, there's always going to be somebody out there that is not going to like you. And I've learned that over the years. I mean, you might have some people that don't know you from Adam. Yeah. Just hear you speaking on the pod class and uh, just so form an opinion like of him. you. I don't like him. Yeah. You yeah. Know what I mean? yeah so sure. I've learned that through life, you know, everybody you come in contact with. It's not going to like you. So you have to learn to live through that and uh, do what you have to do and do what you think is right and the right thing. And if you stand up to it, you're doing something. If you just lay down, it's no good. You can't lay down. So how's your daily life in in, in London? I mean, did, did you receive any abuse in, in daily life or was it was it only ever on on the, the terraces? I know you, you had a, a, a sort of, mini community of people from Bermuda around you. Your brother just lived up the road in Norwood, didn't right, he? he was in Norwood, yeah. So, did, did you did you, did you feel safer once you banded together, or did you feel okay in your day-to-day life in London? Well, we were talking about it today. Um, the street that I stayed in, in the East End London, with the Charles family, hmm. nobody would touch us. Right. Because they knew coming down Ronald Avenue causing trouble, you're going to take some licks or somebody's <laughs> going to chase you. So you don't come down that end of the street yeah. and mess around. I mean, in East End London, you know what East End London's like mm. in those days. I mean, when I look at it now, I mean, it's unbelievable what they've done to that part that used to be the roughest part at one time. Yeah. Through the Olympics and stuff like that. I mean, it's beautiful. But in our day, hey, you had to put your boxing gloves on sure. to get out of there. So I had a lot of friends that were you know, from that area, and mm. they weren't going to mess with me because my friends, I know, would have looked after me and taken care of me. And I suppose West Ham in itself was a sort of safe space. You, you've talked before about how progressive Ron Greenwood was, and mm. to, to him, like, colour really wasn't Im- important. Yeah. But on Easter Saturday in 1972, you beat Spurs 2-0, and West Ham become the first team in England to put three black players in the starting eleven. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Big moment? Day. It was a big moment. Um, what was more important was that the team was so young at that time. I mean, that day, everybody was injured. I think Jeff was injured. Bobby was injured. Mm. You know, Martin, I think, had gone to Spurs by then. And um, he put all these, yeah, yeah, all of us were like, the average age was like under 20. And we were able to go out and we beat Spurs 2 nothing, as you said, 2 nothing or 2-1, something. I remember Eddie Coker scored in, on his, on, scored in that game. Mm. 
And um, it well, he's was, a few years younger than you as well, wasn't he? Yeah, he's a, yeah, he's two or three years younger than me. Um, Clyde was the same age as I, and um, it was great to a see us three. I usually tease Cyril when I ever I spoke to him before his passing. I said, Cyril, you guys were in the first three degrees, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I say us three at West Ham, we were the original deg- three degrees. Yeah, you damn guys right. Are just the uh, Johnny Come Lately ones. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I knew Brendan from Arsenal when he was at Arsenal. Brendan Betts, you know, so. Um, I used to tease him all the time about that, you know. I, I suppose that you did have your moments, th- though, where it was it was a s- steep learning curve. Mm. I mean, you know, we talked about you growing up with absolutely fantastic world class players like Bobby Moore, Jimmy Greaves right. was 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 there later yeah, on, and there was that night before the FA Cup tie at Blackpool <laughs> in nine seven. Come on, you knew I was yeah, going to bring yeah, it up, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and you guys, you thought the game. Was, was going to be called off. Well, we were told, yeah, by the referee. You you got an invitation yeah. mm. to the 007 club. Yeah. You went, and then the game actually happened. We switched again, yeah. And the, the, the result didn't go well for West Ham. The result went horrible for West Ham, but it wasn't that because the guys had too much to drink. Yeah. You know, because it was, it was point, you, Bobby Moore, Bobby Moore, Jimmy Greaves. Jimmy Greaves, Brian Deere. Oh, Brian, right. Frank Lampard. And oh, uh, Frank Lampard Sr. was yeah, out. Yeah, my, oh. myself and okay. my trainer, Rob Jenkins. And the funniest thing about it, um, when you pick the paper up on the next day, they had made a cartoon character, <laughs> Take a picture out of us. As a matter of fact, Brian Deere has added on his phone. He showed it to me this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> that happened in 1970 <laughs> as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah, it was. Um, and the reason we got beat really was because of Tony Green. The um, fellow that was playing for Blackpool, right? He was like a ballerina on ice. I mean, the day this day was snowy, snow came and was coming, came down all day, and he was able to master that better than anybody out right. there that day. And they ended up beating us. I think it was four one, and uh, we got slammed for it. You know, which rightly so. Um, you know, but I don't want people to get the impression that we were drunk. You know, well, you were drinking orange juice, juice anyway, weren't drinking, you? Uh, my favorite drink then was uh, ginger beer and lime. All right, well, yeah. there you go. <laughs> so you know, it's just might as well as drink orange juice, you know. But um, and we understand how fans feel when you go out and you get a good threshing, mm. um, you know. But it wasn't because they alcohol or anything or late night. It wasn't that late. We were in bed before twelve. Yeah, and um. You know, we got back early and, you know, we just never thought the game was going to be on. You know? But did the did the perception of what happened, I mean, it, it affected Bobby Moore's re- re- relationship with West Ham, didn't it? It In some way, it probably did. Um, I, I, my, I tell people all the time, hey, Bobby Moore to me, you know, you, you can touch Bobby Moore. Nobody at West Ham can touch Bobby Moore. For when sure. When it comes to football, he's mm. the god of West Ham United, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to football. Then you got person like Jeff, you got Martin, you got Billy Bonds, you know, and Trevor Brooklyn, you know, these are people that, you know, you elevate because they deserve it. And and that's simply because of what they done for West Ham. And as I say, us guys that were there that night, hey, we made a mistake. You know, in life everybody makes mistakes, you know. 
but don't hang me for a mistake <laughs> like that. You know what I mean? Hey, it's just something that happened, you know, mm. and um, it could have happened to anybody. It was just unfortunate that it had to be us five or six of us. And um, I'm sure if you spoke to everybody, they would tell you, you know, that would never, it never happened again. You know, we learned from a mistake and we understood that, hey, when you go out, you got to behave yourself, carry yourself a certain way, and don't go out the night before a game. <laughs> we knew that. Yeah. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of the Football Ramble is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life throws many different challenges at us, and as a result, we all have our own sources of stress. Whether big or small, those stresses can impact our lives in unpredictable ways, and if we don't address them, they can have an outsized and unwanted impact. Therapy is a safe place in which we can address these issues, learn to understand them, and find ways to work through them. Having therapy can be beneficial to anybody, not just people who've experienced major traumas, even if you may have not considered it before. It could be simply a time for you to get things off your chest, a way to learn positive coping skills or how to set boundaries. Ultimately, it can be whatever you need it to be. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and BetterHelp will match you to a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash ramble. After your time at West Ham, uh, you uh, went off to North America. Yes, and I mean, people talked about there being interest in you from from other first division clubs. What made America an interesting left field idea into reality? Well, because I had been there the summer of '75, and I went out on loan. Eddie Fermani used to be Charlton manager then came over to um, America. I had an agent, the same fellow Bobby had, um, called uh, Jack Turner. And he got in touch with Jack and wanted to know if I wanted to come for the summer. I said, yeah, why not? You know, I'm, you know, haven't played much this season. So, you know, I think it'd be a good thing if I was to go and play. So when I came back for preseason, 
you know what I mean, tip-top shape. Um, so he let me go for that summer, and it was a fantastic time. We had a good team. I mean, um, John Boyles from Chelsea. We had Johnny Sistens from West Ham, Stuart Jump from Stoke, Stuart Scullion from Warford, myself, Derek Smithers from Chelsea, Paul Hammond was goalkeeper from Crystal Palace, Mark Lindsay. You know, so we had a fairly decent team, and we ended up winning the championship that year. So, you know, it was nice to go and help develop soccer in America, so to speak. And um, was, it, it, was that the feeling you had, that it really was yeah, something that was yeah, in, in development? It, it was new. It was new, and um, it was nice to be a part of that, you know, new era, so to speak, because at the time we went to Tampa, I mean, we might have started out with 1,500 people but by the time we left we were filling the stadium with 60,000 people wow so you know that was a big improvement and it was because the team was successful and you got to remember no matter where you are in the world sports people like their team winning and you had a bit of a rivalry actually didn't and you with, had, with, with the cosmos we had a big rivalry with the cosmos because pele turned up at roughly the same time as you pele came the year after me Pele, Carlos Alberto, Carlos Alberto, um, Beckenbauer a couple of Beckenbauer, years later. France came probably a year later. Yeah. Um, Niskins, um, Vim Reisbergen, all these guys that come over. Eusebio was in Toronto. Didn't you end up playing with Cruyff when you were guesting with the Aztecs? I, with the Aztecs, yeah. I played with Johan. I've got to know Johan very well. Um, and playing against him and with him on tours because lots of times they were going tours to different parts of the world with either the Cosmos or you, um, the Aztecs and mm. they would invite me to come with them. So I got to know him and Pele very well. Yeah, That's interesting, isn't it? Because we think of football as being very partisan mm. in, in England, but it does seem that you're all like working together to make football grow there. Yeah, we... we um, understand the task that we had and uh you know everybody was on board of trying to do the best we could and as i said um the nasl i mean um we drew some decent crowds i mean when you had your final game what they call the um uh the nasl championship mm. final i mean was always broadcast live on on national television and New York, you would get fifty to sixty thousand people there watching, you know, the finals. Because you must bear in mind there are a lot of foreign people in the United States of America yeah. that grew up with football, so it um, makes it a bit more easy to get the people into the stand. And you got a drawing card like Pele, people are going to come watch you anyway, you know. And so, if we look at football today, we've We'd like to think we've come a long way from when you started out in in, in the sixties, and mm. when you had to put up with that abuse when you mm. went to away grounds, when you went to Everton and Leeds mm. and Leicester and all, mm. all these other places. But we're seeing more issues at the moment with racism in stadiums. Why do you think that is? Well, because I think people that are in position in position need to do more in positions of power yeah need to do more to prevent this from happening mm. i mean you look at uh the other day when you had england playing in was it 
Bulgaria. Bulgaria. Yeah. And they done that. You know, FIFA or UEFA should come out and say, hey, we're going to bend them for two, three games mm. to hit them where it's going to hurt them. And that is financially. Mm. Because you get England going to Bulgaria playing, you're going to get a packed house. Mm. Now, if you say to them, hey, the next time there's a game, international game, we're not going to let no spectators come, you know, that's going to be a punishment for you. But nobody takes that initiative to say that we're going to hit them where it hurts, you know, so they let them just go and come back the next week and, and, and taunt and throw chance at the next group of players of color that are going to be coming. So do you, do you think part of the issue with the, the, the people in positions of power uh, who can maybe affect this not being able to deal with it, do you think there are just not enough people of color represented that probably, in those that positions probably, of power. That probably has something to do with it too. Um, because you got to remember, a person of color playing and being abused on the field every day, they know what it feels like. Yes. The average person that is not of color, they don't know what it feels like because mm. it doesn't happen to them. You know, but if it happens to your teammate that is a person of color, you know, he he he. if he doesn't hear it, something's wrong. You know, he's going to hear it. And yeah. if you're not strong enough, it can really affect you. Yeah. You know, so we have to work hard as people and not just um, in England, worldwide. Hey, don't judge a person because of the color of the skin. Judging what he brings forth to the table, so to speak, you know. So, I mean, you, you, you spoke of an interesting idea in your book was you were talking about players, uh, prominent black players, mm. maybe being sent to countries where you have had this sort of abuse mm. to come face to face with fans and, you know, kind of, I guess, remove the barrier. So they realize that there's an actual person behind who you're abusing. I thought that was a really interesting idea. I mean, does it sort of plug into, say you've got someone like Raheem Sterling, mm. who's not just an incredible player, but someone who's become a, a prominent figure in society because, mm. okay, he hasn't done that and he hasn't been asked to do that. But what he has done via social media is gone, look, this is, this is me, not talking through the club, not talking through an official statement. This is me directly saying, this is what I think, this is what I think is unacceptable and this is how I'm challenging it. Well, I, I would say to him, power to him. Mm. I think that's a good thing, you know, because you got to remember it's a different era. They get things done a lot quicker because of things like that that you're playing with right now. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just my notes. I'm not checking my mails. <laughs> you see? So, you know, you have to admire him for that. You know, my advice to him was be to continue doing what you're doing. Mm. You know, don't let them knock you off course of what you want to do. And, uh, hey, just just keep fighting for what is right, you know, because I say one thing every time I speak on this subject. The ball doesn't care what color you are. Hmm. As long as you know how to play, the ball is going to let you have a part of him and you can keep it to your feet. If you can't play, the ball's going to go all over the place. Yeah, I know that feeling. See? So <laughs> my thing to Raheem would be, hey, continue doing what you're doing. And remember, there are going to be people coming after you. So you have to make a platform for them. 
when they come along. And when we talk about black people being in positions of power, mm. you moved into um, football management of sorts in, in 1996. By that time, you've retired. Mm. You're settled with your family in mm. the States where mm. you continued living after your retirement. But then you get the call from Bermuda with the offer to be technical director. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it was a good thing. It's something that I always wanted to do was to go home and try to give something back. Yeah. You know, and I think that's important. And I would advise every footballer in the world, if you are doing something overseas and you're doing something very well, don't be afraid to go back home and contribute and give something back because that's what's going to help to make the world a better place. You know, and um, especially today, these guys are making moocha, moocha, box so you know don't be afraid to give if you see somebody on the street that needs help go and help them well i, I suppose in your we'll come to your foundation in a minute mm -hmm. but in, in terms of football it's not just about the money is it it's about the experience i mean what did you feel was the gap when you started helping out with the bermuda national team obviously you've got someone like sean gota who mm by working his way up, eventually like, became a Manchester City legend here mm. and he's still very much loved by mm. Manchester City fans. But what was the gap between like, what you'd experienced in England and the States and the sort of facilities and the, I guess, management structure that existed in Bermuda? Well, definitely it's not of the level that we have here, you know, especially when it comes to facilities. Our facilities are nice, but, sure. you know, we need to get them better. Mm. You know, um, I think the it's always going to be a battle when you pit amateurs and professionals together because the mentality is different, mm. you know. And um, in Bermuda, most of our guys are amateur. You know, we're getting more players now coming over this part of the world and applying their trade. You yeah. know, playing in the uh, uh, semi pros and uh, low divisions. That's a good thing for the country. You know, and I, the, because I'm a believer, if I've got somebody playing here, it's going to be better than what I have where I'm coming from. Because yeah. the standard there in Bermuda at the time is not as high as it should be and the way it used to be. Mm. You know, because as we said, children today are not outdoorsy children. Mm. Most children today are in the house doing one, mm. playing with the computer. You see, and... I tell a lot of players today, get off their computers, come outside and apply your trade. That's how you learn the game. What well, a ch child's instinct yeah. it, before all that is introduced is to be outside, isn't yeah. it? Children are basically yeah. the yeah. same, aren't yeah. they? Well, they should be, you know, but because of these, the modern technology, mm. you know, I mean, children today, you know, are not children to be outside for some right. reason, you know, and you blame the parents as well because a lot of the parents will give Johnny a computer or a telephone to just sit there and play to keep mm. him quiet. Mm. You know, I mean, I have nephews and great nephews. I have one in particular likes his uh, computer. And when he comes to me, I mm. tell him, you're at my house. you got one hour. Mm. After that, go outside and play. Mm. You know, because um, you can't be on these things all the time, especially if you want to be a good sports person because this thing doesn't teach you how to do a blindside run or <laughs> yeah. do a third man run or something like that. You have to be on the field 
to be able to learn that sort of stuff. So. Uh, and your foundation plugs into grassroots, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's it's about it's about developing young players and education. Yeah. Um, it's also got a particular focus on goalkeeping. How did that come about? Well, we, you know, we've always felt that we need to have uh, good goalkeepers, and not anybody could coach goalkeeping. You know, goalkeeping. I think you're better off having the person that has done goalkeeping coaching to coach the goalkeepers. I mean, yeah. if you say to a fullback, "Go take the goalkeepers," you know, he's not going to really know what to do. Mm. Like a person that has been in goal week in and week out, that can spread the gospel to the goalkeepers. So, if we have to send somebody away or have someone come in to help them, those are the sort of things that we like to do. Um, and you've got a Bermudan goalkeeper over here now, haven't you? You've got Nathan Trott at West Nathan, Ham, who's yeah. at Wimbledon at the moment. Yeah, but Nathan, I think England have taken him from us. Yeah, they have, haven't they? <laughs> you know, that's the sad thing about uh, playing here, is that now that they, we have the British passport, you know, um, mm. our kids have a, have a double choice. You know, you have two choices. You either mm. can play, if you're good enough, England are going to pick you if you're good enough. You know, with Nathan, they mm. saw something in him. And he is a darn good goalkeeper. And, um, you know, he's got the decision to make when the time has come. When the time comes, I know what decision I would make if I were him, but that's <laughs> up to him, you know. But um, those are the things that you have to go through, you know, when you're on that side, you know. And um, as I said, I, I'm a believer in you got to give something back, you know. And this is my way of trying to help my school, whether it be trying to get them in university or helping them to go to college if they can't afford it or, you know, um, helping them to go get trials if they haven't got the money to go. You know, that's the sort of things that I enjoy doing. And as long as I've got the golf uh, tournament and the foundation, that's what I'll continue to do. And it it, it does stuff for cancer awareness as, as yeah. well and, and, and helps people with treatment. Yeah, we try to get involved with cancer and the reason mainly... My daughter, she was diagnosed with cancer at like 33 years old. And um, she's doing wonders. She's 10 years clean. We got it early, which Amazing. is a good thing. And she goes every year back to Boston to have a check to make sure everything's okay. And that's one of my main reasons for wanting to help people with cancer. And as I've said to you earlier, this game is so powerful we need, we could do a lot more, mm. you know, than they're doing because you look at it, the people around the world that don't have drinking water. Mm. Should there be people this day and age around the world not having drinking water? That's true. Now, if we took a game in Brazil, Rio de Janeiro, we took a game at Giant Stadium, New York City, or the Rose Bowl. We took a game in um, England. We put a game in Germany. You put a game in Italy. You put a game in Spain, even Russia. Mm. Those are seven countries. If we had everybody playing that same time, look at the money you're going to raise. You're talking about the whole live aid thing, really. Right. Yeah. Look what you're going to do. And look at the people you'll be able to help mm. if you were to do stuff like that. And a lot of the people that are in that area, those are the things that they need to look at. You know, because they're this day and age, it shouldn't be people suffering like they are yeah. when it comes to 
2020 coming up, you know, and you still have people like that in the world. So as I said to you previously, if you're a footballer and you can afford to help somebody, try and help them. Finally, we've taken up loads of your time, mm. Clive, and I thank you for being so generous. Mm-hmm. Um, you're While you're over here in London from Bermuda, you're going to be taking a little trip to West Ham, of course. How does it feel when you go to see West Ham? Obviously, it's not Upton Park anymore, but do you still get that old feeling? Do you still get that feeling from the from the club? I know you watch them most weeks. That's well, the, the, the beauty of modern technology, isn't it? Well, I'm... As I said, modern, modern technology is fantastic. I mean, it affords me the opportunity to do things like that. You know, I just look at it when it comes to the playing side. Sometimes mm. you need to forget that and put it down and go out there and actually do the work yourself, you know, mm-hmm. rather than worry about that technology. But um, coming back and being at the Olympic Stadium, I, from a club point of view, I think it's a fantastic thing that they were able to get the Olympic Stadium in the first place because it affords us the opportunity to um, generate more income, you know, for the club and for uh, getting players. You so know? you're still hopeful for that, so that they'll be able to do that? I, I, I hope so. I mean, we're getting drawing, what, 50, almost 60,000 people yeah. now, you know, so hopefully in the near future, they're going to be able to uh, start uh, spending that money on that. I don't know how much they have to play to the rental of the stadium i'm sure it's a decent amount of money but you know it'd be nice someday if it, they can get their own like tottenham have done and arsenal have done because that way you know you can see exactly mm. what you're going to be doing you know what you got coming in what you got going out you know so. it'd be nice to let like some more local people in cheaply wouldn't it as, as well because well, football's really expensive nowadays football is unbelievably expensive i i Tell my wife, I don't know if I would go if I lived in England right now. Yeah. Because if you want to go and take your family, you're probably looking at about three, four hundred pound a, a game, wouldn't you? Yeah. If, you, if you're going to be eating food and drinking stuff like that. Oh, know, the so. kids always want to eat. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. So it'd be nice if they can come up with something where they can look after the fans at least, you hmm. know, and give them now and again a, a cheap ticket or something to come and watch, you know, because as you said, it's very expensive. Fingers crossed. Well, look, thanks so much for joining us anyway, Clive. I hope you enjoy the game and I hope you enjoy your time over here. Long as rest of and win and I'll be happy. You know. Thanks so much, Clive. This was a Stakhanov production. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.